Let's pray for him and uh, open our hearts to receive today. Oh God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word, the gift of your word that you've given to us and for gifts that you've given to the church, Lord, to, uh, to, to proclaim your word. And I thank you for that on Alec. Lord, thank you for the gift he is to our body, the gift he is to me. Thank you, Lord, for uh, his friendship and his love and the passion, Lord, he has for uh, your kingdom. And Lord, we just ask you for your empowering today that out of the treasure of his heart, Lord, he'd bring forth good things, Lord. And we open our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Gordy. Uh, well, um, just a reality check for everybody. Oh, okay. <clears throat> um, mic check one, two. Check one, two. Test one, two. Chickity, 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 chick, check. Chickity, chickity, check. Um, you're in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's, it's 11.15 a.m., January 15th, and you're in church. And there's a lot of other places you could be, but you're here at Vancouver Eastside Vineyard Church with a bunch of other people. Some of them you know, some of them you don't. You know, some of them you know well, some of them you wish you didn't know so well. But all the same, you're here, and we've been singing songs, we put money in a basket, we're going to listen to some guy talk for a while, me, you know, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> oh, Cindy, thanks. Thank you, Ross, thank you. You know, why are we here? What are we doing? What are we doing here? Consider this quote from Eugene Peterson as we get started. In the press of world events that oscillate between the glamour of celebrities and the violence of terrorists, worship seems an absurdity. Some, pe some people feel it to the point of abandoning it. Surely this can't be the right thing to do for human beings of strength and goodwill and intelligence. Surely it's a waste of good energy to hand around a loaf of bread and a chalice of wine. You know, good point, Eugene. Given the fact that we actually believe God wants to change the world, couldn't it be just a, a royal waste of time each week to come here and do this? Shouldn't we be spending our energy a bit differently? I mean, we've got two hours, two and a half hours. We, a lot of us get here at 8, 8.30 in the morning, and then we stay till 1, 1.32. Couldn't we energize ourselves a little bit differently? You know, what are we doing this for? Could it be all we're doing is taking a hit of self-congratulation, a little dose of you know, self-delusion, making ourselves feel good through a self-help session or something, because there's a world out there. Maybe, that, that could be what we're doing, but I hope not, because as Peterson goes on to say, genuine worship, this time here, is the time in which God shapes his action among us and in the world. Nothing that we do has more effect in heaven or on earth. Really? What a claim. Is it credible that nothing we do has more effect in heaven or on earth? Let's pray. Lord, I do pray right now that your spirit would be with us. God, that uh, um, despite the shortfalls that I feel are in this um, sermon that I've prepared, despite my own um, discombobulation, Lord, I pray that your word would be heard above all else. 
If it's not you, then let it fail. But if it's you, let us respond as you would have us respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Now then, there's a lot we could talk about today, and I'll be honest and tell you that uh, I probably haven't been very discerning about what we should talk about. One of the, one of the reasons for that is that it's really hard to prepare a sermon uh, topically. You know, we, we've got a theme here, worship. It's, it's very difficult to, to discern what actually needs to be said from a topic so large. It's a lot easier when you have a, a, a sermon series dictated by scripture, specific scripture that you then just this exegete. So, worship. You know, but this is what I've decided to do. I want to start by responding to some of Gordy's comments that he made last week, and I'm going to move on to explain what I think is really at stake with a lot of our practices of worship, you know, things like communion, baptism, and the like. And I want us to discover how it can be that nothing we do on heaven has more effect on heaven or on earth. I want to discover that. And I'm going to be a bit deliberately provocative today. I want to challenge some of the things that I think we're comfortable with. I'm doing that intentionally, so don't hate me through the, through the sermon. I, I hope so, that some questions start bubbling up. But first, the definition. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on this just yet, but just to have it in your heads. This, last week, Gordy gave us a, a, a working definition of worship. He said, it is the appropriate giving back to God what he has first given us in response to his self-revelation and recognition of his presence, whether perceived or not. And I think that's really helpful. Um, We're going to come back to it later. The second thing I've dwelled on this week, after after thinking about Gordy's sermon, has been um, one of the things he said right at the beginning, actually. Um, He was talking about the Westminster Catechism with its first question. What's the chief end of man? And the response is that the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Gordy explained that this really is a conclusion drawn from such scriptures as Jesus' description of the greatest commandment. You know, the greatest commandment being to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, the seconds like it, love your neighbor like yourself. If you remember, if you've already described loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as though your life depended on it. That's what it means. And, and we've already heard that this morning. It's already been reiterated. Well, I think that's helpful. But... If you remember back last week, Gordy made a bit of a a leap right after that. He said, sometimes it doesn't feel to him like our people here come to worship God together as though our lives depended on it. And I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I felt both a bit offended and convicted. Because it's true. You know, it, it is true. But despite it being true, I also tried to think this week about that connection he made. The connection between my personal love for God, and what that has to do with my participation here at church. What's the connection there? Why was Gordy able to make that leap from the greatest commandment and how come we don't come to church as though our lives depended on it? What's the internal logic at work there? He did give us some pretty important things in response, you know, like the fact that we are the bride of Christ, we collectively, communally. He also said, hear the gospel. You know, we hear it together. Hear, O Israel. Israel being singular. He said a lot of really good stuff last week, but I want to push the connection even farther today because no doubt many of us probably recognize we sometimes lack a passion uh, 
for worship, for community worship, for worship here in this place. So we have to say, yeah, we admit it. I'm one of those people Gordy was talking about. I often come in late. I talk through the worship set. I, I you know, check hockey scores on my phone during the sermon, whatever. But I believe in God and what Jesus did for me. Well, after dwelling on this a lot this week, I feel duty-bound to disclose to you what Scripture has to say. That if you believe and consider yourself a part of the church, I want to show you the implicit connection between your worship and the action of God in the world. Um, By way of a teaser, this has become to me, this verse that I'm going to share with you has become to me one of the most powerful scriptures about the significance of the church. It's going to be a, a bit off-putting, I think. This is the scripture. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What do you think? It's a good one, isn't it? Not what you expected? Uh, do you know where this verse is found? I'll give you a hint. It's not in the Gospels. And Paul, you can't answer. You know it. Um, it's in Acts. Yeah. Chapter 9. What's the scene? Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. It's the story. That's right. It's the story of Saul's conversion into Paul the Apostle. It's the scene where Saul the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church of God, undergoes his radical conversion into the Apostle of God. This is the verse in context. Somebody want to read that out while I catch my breath here? Thanks. No. Uh-oh. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go in the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Thank you, Ross. Now you notice something funny about this scene? Ross. Who are you, but I'm telling you who you are. Yeah, that's one, that's, that's one thing. We could talk about that. Paul, what's, what's weird about this? Yeah, the Lord's disciples. Then Jesus shows up saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Which indicates that the disciples that he was persecuting were one with the Lord Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Paul. I have stars for for the end of today. (laughs) Paul here discovers by way of the Lord's revelation... There's a direct, a direct connection between the followers of Jesus and the person of Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, really, because as far as Paul knew up to that point, Jesus was dead. The mission was over. And in his ignorance, all Paul thought he was doing was cleaning up the leftovers, those ruffians who just wouldn't shut up. And yet in this moment of revelation, while he's lying flat on his face in the present of great light, a notable passage on worship in general, he, respond, he hears these words, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. The relationship is, as Paul said, one of identity. 
So we know the church is the body of Christ. But what does that mean? In what way? Does it mean that if someone were to ask where Jesus is today, we should point to each other? I wasn't raised to think that way, were you? You know, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's where Jesus is, right? So what does it really mean that the church is his body? Sorry to barrage you with questions. I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) I want to get you into a headspace where we can open this thing up a bit more. If he's ascended to heaven, what does it mean when Jesus says in Matthew that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am? Does that mean he decides to hang out like a ghost because finally two people said they're going to gather? Or does it mean that all it takes is as little as two to make a church gathered in his name, and he is literally there? Another one. There's a song by a guy I really like named A.A. Bondi. He's got this song that starts with a really great line. He's not a Christian. I don't want to talk about Jesus. Gordy prayed this earlier. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I just want to see his face. Would we respond to A.A. Bondi like one of the early church fathers did, Gregory of Nyssa? He who beholds the church really beholds Christ. Now, these questions are incredibly significant no matter what tradition you come from. And a lot of what divides churches depends on the extent to which we make the church identical with Jesus. It also dictates a lot of what we do here in this place as worship. You know, if we were to put the question explicitly, it's this. To what extent is the visible church to be identified with the actions of the invisible Jesus? Sure. To what extent is the visible church to be identified with the actions and activity of the invisible Jesus? If someone asks, I want to see Jesus, will we point to each other? In the vineyard, I think we have maintained a typically Protestant distinction between the visible church and the invisible action of God. We've we've kept them fairly distinct. Personally, I think we've pushed that separation too far, and this is something I'm wrestling with, so that's why I say this is probably going to raise more questions than it answers, but I think that's a good thing for us. Many of us probably haven't thought about it. I'm growing a lot more comfortable with the idea that there is an identity between the actions of the visible church and the invisible Jesus. If I were trying to be careful today, you know, for guys like Dawson, I would say maybe we should call it an overlap instead of an identity, but I'm not trying to be careful today. We only have a certain amount of time, and I know some people will want to debate details, and I might agree with you, but I'm pretty convinced the danger in our day The danger here in this place is for us to so sharply distinguish between our persons, each other, we distinguish between our persons and the actual presence of God that we find it all too easy to shirk the authority he tried to give us, the responsibility he's given to us, his body, for acting in the world. We've grown comfortable in keeping them distinct. We've grown so comfortable that I'm sad to say I think some of us don't even realize that there is a difference between believing in God or Jesus and actually participating in the divine life of heaven. Do you get that? If I go too fast, please tell me to slow down. I'm flying on caffeine. I was at Starbucks at 6.30 this morning. Finishing. (laughs) 
We've grown so comfortable in keeping our identity as the visible church of, of Christ, the body of Christ, so distinct from God's own transcendent activity, what he wants to do here, that some of us don't even realize there is a difference between believing in God and participating in the divine life of heaven. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. Even the demons shudder. What are we doing? Well, as I said, I think that because we don't see how it is that being a Christian is synonymous with being the body of Christ, because we don't see that connection, our temptation is to resist exercising the authority he says he already gave us. Do you remember that story of everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody? You remember that story? There is an important job to be done. These are four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure, but somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. And everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. This attitude of deference in our culture is really contagious. Let somebody else do it. And that attitude is toxic to a community of worship. Why is that? Well, we're going to change gears and play a little game. We're going to make a bunch of word pairs. You know what word pairs are. Here's a few to get you started. Word pairs. God, world. Heaven, earth. Eternal, temporal. And a question I, have, I want you to have in mind as we go through these word pairs is, how does the left side relate to the right side? How does God relate to the world? How does heaven relate to earth? How does the eternal relate to the temporal? So we're going to make some word pairs. You tell me what fits in order to make it a pair. Spiritual, carnal, physical, invisible, Good. More stars. I only brought five. That's all I thought I'd need. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, joke. <laughs> Internal. Oh, darn. Oh, man. Hold on. Hold the phone. Who knew that was going to happen? Who supernaturally knew it was going to be natural? I'm just kidding. Did I not even make it work right? No, I didn't. Darn. Okay, well, you know the answer now. Supernatural and natural. Wakey, wakey. There it goes. Okay, everybody's a winner. It was a short game. Now, let's ask ourselves, how does one side relate to the other? How does God relate to the world? How does heaven relate to earth? You know, how does the spiritual relate to the physical? Are they forever distinct, or are they completely folded on top of each other? And you say, I don't know, this is weird. What does it have to do with worship? Thank you for the encouragement. Just trust me. Here's where I'm going with this. What we believe about how one side relates to the other determines everything we do, especially when it comes to worship. And our preference for keeping these fears separate means that we don't think that what we do here really affects the realities over here. 
Vice versa, we don't think that what happens on the left necessarily is manifested in the right. Necessarily. Let me give you a concrete example to prove that we don't think that here. I'll give you a hint. You're in it. Alex, exhibit A is this building. What is the condition of our physical building, the physical space that we have consistently met in to worship God? What does its condition say about how we collectively believe God mediates his presence to us? Take a look around. Obviously, it would be fair to conclude we don't think the condition of our building is a significant aspect of our experience of God. And it's a legitimate question. Is it? As I told you, I, I'm starting to become more and more inclined that it is. Some of you might be like, hey, that's not true. I really like stuff thrown around on the stage. It makes me feel at home. Well, that's exactly my point. Just because it appeals to some of our crawled-out-of-bed sense of interior design, that personal preference has absolutely nothing to do with our community's expectations of meeting God through the mess. See what I'm saying? You know, whether we really believe it or not, our practice as a church demonstrates it's not significant for our experience of God that there should actually be that ladder over there. Like, that's intentional. I sense God through it being there. Yeah. <laughs> you rascals. If you already had a star, it's gone. Yeah, exactly. Now, does this, does this necessarily mean that when we gather here, we're not legitimately and sincerely worshiping him in spirit and truth? No, it's not what, that's not what that means. But you've got to wonder why there's no art in here when even in the third century in the catacombs, they find art all over the place when they were just worshiping in candlelight. Over a consistent amount of time, you know, they beautified the place they were in. They, there's symbology there. Take a look at the other side of the spectrum. Anybody know where this picture was taken? If, you, if you've only known the vineyard, this is going to look like an alien ritual or something. You know, bring the brain, Igor. It's Greek Orthodox, yeah, five minutes from here on Boundary Road. Obviously, the environment means something to them. It didn't just happen to look like that. It was intentionally designed to look that way. It's, clear to it's fair to conclude it is significant to them and their experience of worship. And whether you like it or not, aesthetically, the point isn't about that. The point is that at least they're making an intentional movement towards the integration of the physical and the spiritual. I think we're wrong, and I think they're right. Yes, there's scriptures we can read here, and I will in just a second, but let me say first, so no one's confused about what I'm advocating, the scriptures will not tell us that Gordy should wear a pointy hat. They won't tell us that. <laughs> Every gold star I have. The scriptures won't tell us that, but what they will tell us is that there's no such thing as neutral nature. All of nature participates in God's own being. And if we are those who have been redeemed to unity with God, we should also understand that history is headed to the same destination, the unification and the redemption of all things, all creation in Christ. 
Consider that the history of salvation isn't so much about souls as it is about redeeming all things back to the glory of God, to the worship of God. If we grasp that, why wouldn't we be more intentional about the place we've been given to worship him? And obviously, when we take this approach, there's a lot more at stake than just the condition of our building. So here's another example. Is communion actually God's presence in the bread and the juice? If, you know, if it's just a symbol, why not beer and pizza? I like beer and pizza a lot more. Good question. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't see any reason why not, man. Beer and pizza. Oddly enough, there's a song in my iTunes by Delbert McClinton called Midnight Communion. I'm going to sing it. It's Midnight Communion down on 2nd Avenue. And they, it's a blues song. They take the wine till closing time. A fellowship of fools. Confessions heard. Forgiveness given. From 12 o'clock till 2. It's Midnight Communion. Down on 2nd Avenue. Thanks. Now again, this is my personal opinion. Yeah, Chris is like, yeah, that's my church. This is my personal opinion, but I no longer believe that communion is just a symbol. That doesn't mean I believe the bread becomes flesh and the juice becomes blood. But like I mentioned last week, if you remember, that's, that's not the only way to think about something such as transubstantiation. That's the big word for that belief, that the bread becomes flesh, the wine becomes blood. That's not the only way to think about it, is that it becomes those things. It might be the case that by eating the bread and drinking the juice, we become the body of Christ in a way we wouldn't otherwise. After all, it is something Jesus gave us to do. But it also doesn't mean that we can't change the elements. Believing this, believing that there's an integration of the physical with the spiritual, doesn't mean that we can't change the elements. You know, juice is already a switch. We do that rice cracker thing now for you gluten people. <laughs> and, and I love it when we do Robbie's fry bread. Yeah. What's at stake is our answer to the bigger question. Does the physical celebration of communion bring us into participation with a spiritual reality that transcends us, or does it not? Is it just a symbolic gesture that doesn't actually affect the spiritual reality? Is it integral to what we believe it means to participate in the divine life? Or is it something that, you know, if it comes down to it, we can dispense with, because it doesn't really affect our spiritual experience anyway. And if we think the latter if we think it doesn't affect the spiritual reality, why are we doing it? I would dare say we, in that event, are more religious and traditional than these people. If it's just a gesture, who needs it? You know, it's reported that the Southern writer Flannery O'Connor uh, was at a dinner party where she was with a bunch of hoity-toities and she didn't fit in. And she was talking about how much uh, or not, she wasn't talking about it, but one of her, her company guests, a real hoity-toity, was talking about how much she really liked the, the symbolism of communion. It just looked so neat. And O'Connor, who was a devout Catholic, said, well, if it's just a symbol, to hell with the damn thing. <laughs> you see the danger? Dividing too cleanly the physical and the spiritual? 
you know, in the short term, oops, pardon me. In the short term, maybe it all, it, all it means is that we don't care too much about the men's urinal splashing visitors every time they go downstairs in our building and use the urinal. Maybe in the short term, that's all it means. It doesn't really matter. But when do we start caring? You know, when does the building or the way we sing our songs or the way we order our service, when does it become significant to our life in God? Maybe we do start having pizza and beer instead of traditional communion. <laughs> Maybe we do. And then what about baptism? If it's just a symbol of something already happening in my heart, what, is it okay if I put it off indefinitely? And why do we even bother to get together here every Sunday anyways? Church isn't a building, people. So I'd rather get together with my friends and do church at Starbucks. And if we feel like singing songs, I got a slew of worship CDs at home that sound a lot better than those lame musicians at VEV, not talking about Stephen. If you're new here, I, I play too. I was talking about me. Now, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be provocative, as I said at the beginning. But do you see how the trend is towards disintegration? There's no such thing as pure nature, no such thing as a neutral zone. All of reality is charged with spiritual significance, and it'd be good if we read some scriptures so you didn't just take my word for it. Consider the implications of a passage like this for us as the church from Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him uh, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Look at all those word pairs. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, all of them brought to an identity in Jesus, all things. All of creation created through him for him. All things hold together in him. Don't just take Paul's word for it. Other scriptures demonstrate this identity too. Consider John's prologue. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And the points of identity don't just stop with things. They extend to people, too. Probably most of all, because we're God's creation also, made in His image. We are evidence of His handiwork, as every parent can attest, as they watch that little miracle start to grow. Oh, by the way, did we tell you we're pregnant again? It's pretty early, but we're excited. Um, we are made in the image of God. And this is the thing. That's not just Christians. All of humanity is made in the image of God. However dim that image may be now. Through our physical bodies, God has made it possible for us to participate in the divine life of God through Jesus. Did you get that? We're made in the image of God. 
All humanity is made in the image of God. And through our physical bodies, we can participate in the divine life of God through Jesus. So it brings up a good question. What's the difference then between Christians and the rest of humanity? What's the difference between the church and the rest of humanity? The difference is that we've said yes to this possibility of participating in God, and we've already begun. The difference is we've said yes to this possibility. We've heard and believed the good news that through Jesus, nothing can separate us from life of God, in God. Through Jesus, we've become related again to God. Look at our list again. God, world, heaven, earth, eternal, temporal, spiritual, physical, invisible, visible, internal, external. Where does Jesus fit? Where would you put him if you're going to put him in a word list? Not on either side. Yeah. He's the middle. He unifies every binary. He's the little line. He's the dash. He unifies every binary. Every division finds its reconciliation in Jesus. Where do we as his followers fit? As the church. Same. We're awaiting a final destination, but in the meantime, we now participate in heavenly realities. The, the, the scriptures are, are multiform on that one. Like we read in Colossians just now, he's the head, we're the body, and he is one with the Father through him. We're brought to the same unity that Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. He prays for his disciples, but as he says, I don't have it on there for you. I'll read it kind of slow. Uh, he prays for his disciples and then moves on. My prayer is not just for my disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, although the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. We say that salvation is asking Jesus in our heart, but really it's the other way around. Salvation means we say yes to God's invitation through Jesus into God's heart again, which is where we belong and where we are most true to the nature he gave us. Being a Christian means following Jesus back to God. It means to participate now in the life of heaven in Jesus. And when you think about it, church is really just a word we're using temporarily. It's a word for me that I think describes momentarily the ultimate future of the human species. Church is heaven's future humanity, manifested in the present, unified and integrated in Jesus through the Spirit. 
And if you're curious how that could be, um, Matthew 25 tells the story of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes in glory at the end of the age, every eye shall see him as he truly is, and everything will be revealed. All of humanity will be brought to Jesus, there to discover at his throne how long they lived in ignorance. Ignorance of what? Well, just like Saul, when he thought he was persecuting heretics, he was actually persecuting Jesus, all humanity will discover a revelation of the same order. The sheep will be told on his right, the sheep will be told to take their inheritance, for he was hungry and they fed him. Thirsty, they gave him something to drink. A stranger, they invited him in. And they say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, and so forth? When did we, do, when did we see that? He says, I tell you, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. The same revelation will shine on those who discover too late what we as the church should have already discovered through the Spirit. That the door of reconciliation with God and each other has been wide open for 2,000 years. What's done for the least of them is done for Jesus. How? Because the unity he prayed for is already and has already been for a long time a spiritual reality we can participate in. And the point for today is that nothing demonstrates that spiritual unity that we already have with God in Jesus. Nothing demonstrates that more than worship. The unity of all creation is groaning for this, and we will eventually experience it in its fullness. But our worship manifests physically our spiritual reconciliation. It's both at the same time. It demonstrates visibly our reception of God's revelation in the here and now. That's why so many people in the Bible fall on their faces. They receive it, boom. Someday all of humanity will have its receptors restored, and there's only going to be one mode of existence for the human race, worship. Here in this place, as we await that day, our worship lets heaven's light shine upon the darkness that still remains, and it's as boundless as creation itself our worship, which is why you find churches with the entire thing ornately designed as more than just a symbolic gesture. Our worship can be as boundless as creation is wide. Now, we can debate at this point all kinds of aspects involved in how we worship in our church services, but that we do it is non-negotiable. As Peterson said at the beginning, Nothing we do has more effect in heaven or on earth. You see how that could be now? As Gordy said last week, it's like syncing ourselves with the life of heaven. That's what worship is. And um, so we move to wrap up here. When I was growing into the role of worship leader, I heard a lot of people talk all the time to me in my tradition about how worship's more than music. It's more than music. You know, what we're doing is more than just singing songs, man. And that is true. It's totally true. We should bring him more than a song, for a song in itself isn't what he's required. But it's a greater danger, in my opinion, than to forget that there is still a unity between the song itself and the heart. It's all too dangerous and tempting to get comfortable with the distance between the two. Because why? You can stop singing. I'd go so far as to agree that worship is more than singing songs, 
And it's more than eating bread and drinking wine. It's more than just taking a bath in Trout Lake. But if we don't gather, if we don't sing, if we don't do communion or baptism, to what extent are we hastening the day that we just read about in Matthew, when all things and all people will honor the one who came in our flesh to redeem it? How have we heard the good news? Not only is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but all creation has a part to play in that. Um, Some of us are going to have a pretty steep learning curve when we get to heaven, only to realize that all things down here could have already been redeemed for our purposes to the worship of God. It'll be like the junior high dance all over again. The music's playing and nobody wants to dance. You never practiced. All things... We can practice now. And if we see it, if we see, as Gordy said, not just let us see heaven open, but open our eyes to see that heaven is open, if we see that, then I think we'll do it as though our lives depended on it. I don't think it'll be a rational choice we have to make. In light of Revelation, So I'm going to move to pray. We still have five, six minutes, but... I'm just going to pray and then maybe open it up. And if you want to come back at me with some things or if you feel like you have a word, um, let's open it up a little bit. Because I've been deliberately, um, bit, I've pushed things a bit far on purpose. Um, part of that's because I'm trying not to become Catholic. But let's pray. <laughs> Lord, in whatever mysterious way you've given it to us, You've given us your spirit. We as your church are the church by virtue of your spirit calling us forth. You called us into existence as your church, as your body. And that's a mysterious thing that I don't pretend to understand. But I know I've tasted enough, Lord, to to glorify you and worship you and want to see you worshiped and glorified everywhere. I just want to express gratitude to you, to honor you and worship you for sending your son to redeem us back into your heart, that our salvation means we found the place we truly belong. And it doesn't mean we're lost in um, just a mystical fog. It means that you have put to our hands things that can honor you and worship you. Whatever we put our hands to, can become instruments and vessels of your glory. I just pray that that ripple would just um, reverberate through this place here. You would consecrate us, Lord, by your Spirit. You'd speak to dry bones by your Spirit. Lord, you'd call them forth. You'd, You'd just drive out deadness in us. And let us rise up, Lord. Um, Rise up to worship you and honor you and glorify you. Let us be intentional about the things we do for you. Give us some time to clean up the stage. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.